Welcome to Ignite, an original podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. This is a podcast for business pros like you, from sports and entertainment to travel and tourism, financial services to economic development and more. We uncover relevant, timely information that will help keep you at the fore of consumer behavior understanding. Our host, Chris Wise, the brains behind Ignite, has been deeply committed to research, insights, and innovation for over 30 years. He knows the right questions to ask and, more importantly, what to do with the answers. Get ready for the engaging, in-depth conversations with industry leaders that will inspire you to take action and connect with your audience on real human terms. This is Ignite, the spark to light your fire. Welcome to Ignite, where we have the opportunity to talk with subject matter experts about important and compelling marketing communications and intelligence issues. Specifically, we delve into incredible tools for audience identification, behaviors, and ways to communicate with them, allowing for total engagement. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Jamie Pooley, CEO and co-founder of Veridata Insights. Did I say that right? You did. You did. You nailed it. Okay, thanks. So, Jamie, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you. Yes, me too. It's a pleasure to be here. So thank you. Market research and intelligence, much like the business and communications world, has been changing or rather evolving at a rapid rate, a rate that continues to accelerate at what seems like breakneck speed. Technology advances continue to help us find people the right people, to study in very specific and audience-specific ways. And artificial intelligence is helping us dig deeper and broader. Kind of feels like we're on a fantastic theme park ride. For me, (laughs) I just don't want to stop. Awesome and rewarding fun. Yep. So, Jamie, tell us about yourself, a glimpse of who you are, your background, and what let you team up with Tom Littlejohn to form Veridata. So, first and foremost, I'm a mother of four girls, I'm happily married. So my children, they're again, all girls. So it's like a bit of a chaotic household with ages 16, 14, 13, and then 18 months old. So (laughs) lots of stuff going on there. And then in regards to my career, I started at a small boutique agency. It was a full service marketing research firm out of Dallas, Texas. And I was a project manager there for several years. Once I left, I joined an organization called Eve Awards, which was, you know, ended up being the largest global B2B panel in the marketplace. And when I joined, I was the 13th employee. So we, it was very much a startup environment, you know, really trying to figure out the gaps in the marketplace, you know, that we want to field, how to create a scalable business, how to create products and services and things like that to really, again, fill the gaps in the marketplace and how to make money. When I started, we were in the red. So, uh, you know, cash flow, revenue, all were very, very top priorities for all of us. Um, when I left Evil Boards, I was, which was then researched now through a merger and acquisition, um, we had over 600 global employees and I was managing the largest region within that organization. And then I had also launched Latin America for the business. And I was the first senior vice president sales female in the company. So, you know, had a lot of opportunity to learn a lot, achieve a lot, and it was just a phenomenal part of my career. Once I left Research Now, I then joined a company called Critical Mix. A lot of these companies no longer exist, right, because of all the mergers and acquisitions. But joined Critical Mix, and Tom Littlejohn had been at Critical Mix for several, several years before me. I was hired there to open the Dallas office and build out teams, both on the sales and ops side. When they were acquired, you know, Tom and I took a step back and we said, you know, we have our own ideas 
on how to build a company, how to treat clients, how to treat employees, how to build a panel, how to maintain it, um, and how we want to provide this very high level client service. And then that is why Veridata exists today. And I would say, just to add on, that we shared such core beliefs, not only in business, but also personally. So we ended up getting married. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> that works out sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Our pillow talk is fun, right? Because it's it's kids and business. <laughs> so, Do you ever set business aside? You have to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have to. We've had to learn that over the last three and a half years, so that did not come naturally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so what is the driving force that that keeps Veridata on such a meteoric path? It seems like you're, you've been doing very well and very quickly. And then along with that, what void are you filling and what really sets you apart? What truly sets you apart from all the others? Yeah, I love that question, right? So, you know, I think it's important to know that we've had zero outside investment. So everything that we've done in this organization, it's been built from the ground up and it was self-funded through Tom and myself. And that is everything from the Biz Knowledge Panel to the technology that we utilize, it's called Sample Tap, and that's what we—that's what our PMs use to manage all the different projects they have. So I really think the technology, and then the core of it is client service. So you know, as Tom and I had the opportunity to start with companies that were small and then grew into very large organizations, there was a couple of things that went away with that: flexibility, being nimble, and having the ability to be creative versus just looking at your internal assets and going, what can we do with this? Anything outside of that, it's no bid or best efforts or whatever. So when we created Veridata, again, Biz Knowledge Panel will always be a core at the core of this business. With that being said, we never want to be just a panel company. So as audiences become more niche and harder to get to, and you know they're just smaller populated segments that we want to talk to, creative solutions will always be part of a service we provide. And regardless of how big we get, our goal is to be nimble and flexible. And so we don't want our clients to have to mold how we work in our processes. We really want to get to know our clients and work to become an extension of their team. And the void that we're trying to fill is a better company through technology, both on the client service side, on the panel side, on the sample sourcing side, and then making sure it's high quality with real-time validation and, and being fun to work with. And then also looking at the gaps that are naturally in the marketplace today. So if you're thinking about unacculturated Hispanics, Hispanics, African-Americans, 18 to 24-year-olds, and B2B is a huge part of that and a huge thing we're focused on. Those are all the other gaps that we're trying to fill from a sample sourcing perspective. I love it. Uh, well, I, I know obviously firsthand the, on the B2B side and the and the great project and, and uh, experience I've had in and you finding those those critical C-suite people and, yep. and letting them spend 30 minutes with me, it was, it's been wonderful. So Good. thank you for that and hats off and we'll keep doing business together. All right. I love hearing that, by the way. That's a huge compliment. So thank you. <laughs> sure. So marketers are drowning in data, lots and lots of data. Often it's an ocean of numbers and many organizations view specs of data in irrelevant ways. Looks good on paper, but means little or nothing when it really boils down to how it's being applied from a marketing perspective. How, how do you think marketers can best embrace the data that they have in front of them in a way that rewards and doesn't overwhelm? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think it's been a challenge of our industry uh, for 10, 20 years. So it's, it's you know, it, this is not new, right? Right. So there's a couple of things that really helped me. And I will say too, that I feel like people in the marketing research industry are naturally, are naturally curious. Um, and, and I, and I'm the same way. I'm naturally curious. So as I start looking at data and looking at the different information and really get an in, integrated with it, <clears throat> I go down these different rabbit holes because I'm like, oh, that's a fun tidbit. I didn't know about that. Like, I want to learn more about that. So one thing that keeps me focused is on a piece of paper somewhere near my computer, I will write down the research objective and the goal. And then as I go down these rabbit holes, if I look over and look at my goal and see that what I'm looking at is has nothing to do with it or isn't going to get me there, I quickly climb out of the hole and refocus. The other really important part, I think, is to have a very clear definition, not only on the research objective, but on what parts of the data are useful versus nice to know. There's so much data out there that if you don't have that clear definition of what part of the data is helping you answer the questions that you need answers to, I think that's where you end up going all over the board um, and, and looking at things that are just uh, not necessary at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've always been of the mind to only ask the questions that you really want answers to and yes. avoid those nice to knows because then you have a terribly long project or a survey tool that, that, A, you don't get what you want because people time out, fatigued out, and and why? You spent, you wasted resources on a, oh, wouldn't that be nice to know as opposed to what I need to know, so. No, yeah. and that's true. And you see that in long-term trackers too, right? Because people like to add questions over the years. And yeah. then at some point, I mean, there's been several conversations when we're going like, do you guys really look at all the all of the data for all the questions that have been in here 10 plus years? And they're like, no. <laughs> well, why are we still asking them? <laughs> so, I do think there's technology today that that also help companies with that. So, you know, building out knowledge centers internally or custom dashboards that allow different divisions of businesses to look at the data that's really important to just their part of the business um, is also a really effective way to make sure people stay focused and don't get drowned throughout all the noise with all the other data that might not even be pertinent to what they're doing in their daily jobs. Do you ever hit a brick wall when it comes to client understanding a legitimate application of marketing intelligence and the best ways to find and study different audiences, especially in your case, those niche and obscure audiences? Uh-huh. I love this question. And, and I really had to think about it, right? Because I don't think our brick wall is with client understanding. I think the marketplace over the last decade has been very conditioned to doing sample or the, at least the sampling portion of the research very fast and very cheap. And so when you're looking for those really hard to reach audiences, a lot of times those two factors don't play a role in getting to them. So it's really about creating that creative sampling approach and then making sure we're doing a good job of describing how we're going to get to those people. But a lot of time that takes time and that takes budget. And I think that's really the brick wall that we've come up across is that companies are so used to going like, oh, well, I paid $15 for an IT decision maker. And now that I'm looking for somebody within a hosp you know, hospital system that uses some type of high, you know, IT software that might only cover 10% of the market share within the hospital market. And I want that for $15. And the answer is like we can get to them, but it's not going to be in the timeline you think it should be, and it's not going to be in the budget you want it to be. 
Right. So on the project we just wrapped up, I think we came with adequate budget to get to the people we want to. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And, and you had a very open mind on how to get to the to the C-level executives. Um, and that's that's the first step, right? Is, is having an open mind and understanding these people don't always exist on online panels. So how do we get to them? Right, right. My next question is, that it really deals with diversity, equity, inclusion. And do you think research practitioners are doing an intentional and good job of representing that 26% of the U.S. population who are disabled adults specifically? And knowing within right. that 26%, only 8% have visible disabilities, the rest are invisible disabilities. So how can inclusivity in the truest sense of the word be really embraced by the collection tools that we use and that we really pay attention that so we can do some segmentation along those lines? Is that possible? I mean, this is a, especially from a data collection standpoint, it's important that we don't miss them, that they're, they're viable consumers, they operate businesses, they have, they are us. And so um, what do you think? Chris, I have to tell you, this was a really hard question for me (laughs) um, because there's a couple of thoughts to it, right? One, if I were to take a step back and look at all the thousands of projects that we do on an annual basis, both for consumer and business professionals, there is not one example that I could come up with where we're even asking about disabilities. So one, I think I think a lot of the people that suffer disability, disabilities, depending on how we're defining that, right, is it ADHD, um, autism, but again, it all depends on how we're defining that. So I think a lot of times these people are participating in our research naturally, but because we're not tracking that through any particular questions within the survey design, I don't think we know if they're represented or not, and not at the 26% level, which they natu- which they should be. Um, so I think if we're more interested in, in tracking that, the first thing that has to change is the questionnaire development and the design. Um, the other part too is I, I think it goes back to the research objective and the goal of the project. So, you know, you want to be really careful on understanding the audiences that you want to speak to to reach those objectives. And I think sometimes that's really important to make sure that we're inclusive of those audiences. And other times it may not be. You know, I don't don't always know the answer to that, but I can tell you as a whole, we're not doing a very good job of asking the right questions to even track what you're talking about. Right. Even in, even in the, the kind of questions, if, if so, if we talk about an online survey, yeah. sometimes the question type that we use is not friendly to assistive devices. So a screen reader can't pick up certain types of questions. So that excludes a response to that question. Yes. And, you know, I've been doing research for lots of decades, and it hasn't always been um, at the fore of any conversation right. here and there, but I think it's just something with, that, that overall we just need to be more aware of. And when we're, de- for me, when I develop a survey, also be more aware of it and test it against before we go live, test it uh, with people that use assistive devices in their use of the internet. So, okay, I, I appreciate that. So so now we're that, that big question is you look beyond to, I say 2023, but I'm really looking beyond that. Uh, where do you see market research intelligence going? What are your challenges, fears, and joys? 
Oh my gosh. So I will tell you one of the things that um, can both be a challenge and a joy is technology. So the foundation of their data, for example, is technology. So utilizing technology so our project managers can do a better job. So it's not about pushing the button. The systems we're building do that for you. And that allows them more time to be able to pivot when we need to pivot or have more proactive communication or problem-solving skills for the really hard projects, right? And a lot of times, because we don't make widgets and everything is custom, um, there's a lot of times you're walking into a project the incidence is 10% and then you're like, well, here we are at a 1% incidence. So we want our operations team really developing the solutions for those types of issues versus pushing the button to get the gen pop sample out. Um, so very excited about technology. Also, if you were to look at SampleTap, which is again, our project management system that we build internally, where it was six months after we started the business and where it is today, it looks and feels completely different. By the time we're done with the user interface of that technology, we want it to be so simplistic that if anybody in the marketplace wanted to go in and drop sample or, or do something within that platform, they would be able to do that. It should be that easy to manage. But that gives us internal capabilities and flexibilities too, because then that means you're also reducing training time for new operation team members. You know, so there's some benefits to not only having it easy to work for for the marketplace, but also internally. Um, so I think technology, I also think the industry as a whole, who in my opinion, historically has been a little bit late to adapt to new technologies and new ways to do things, are starting to adapt a little bit faster. And I, with AI, some automation, and I think all of those things are glorious. I do think that the fear is, is that you really have to understand the biases because I don't care what research methodology you're doing or how you're recruiting, or if it's qual or quant, you know, there are certain biases in all of the research that we do. So one, making sure that we want it to be the smallest amount possible, but then also understanding what that is. And the fear is, is, you know, people adapting to the way consumers and business professionals want to participate in research. So a really good example, we work with a lot of different clients, a ton of different sizes, different specialty groups, all that fun stuff. You would be shocked at the number of companies that still do not have mobile friendly surveys. Yeah, I would be. And if you look at that, you know, the people that come through the business knowledge panel and other online panels, you know, typically about 30 to 50% of the people are trying to participate in that survey through a mobile device. If we're doing social media recruitment, which is a phenomenal resource for the hard to reach audiences that are typically less represented on online panels. So again, unacculturated Hispanics, Hispanics, African-Americans, young age groups, old age groups, all those fun stuff. 80% of that traffic is coming through mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And so I think as an industry, we really have to, and I know we've gotten better, right? Moving from phone to online. Um, but I think we really have to get better and more understanding of going, if we're asking these people to give us information and data and share with us, we want to allow them to do it in a way that they're comfortable and in their natural state. And if it's mobile devices, then our questionnaire should reflect that. Um, so I think that's I think that's a challenge, you know, going into 2023, just because I haven't seen a ton of change in that area across the board. 
Wow. Interesting. Talk about slow to adapt and adopt. When COVID hit and there was this big outcry that we need to be able to shift to online focus groups, I'm going, I've been doing online focus groups for the last 15 years. I didn't understand why all of a sudden we need to think about that. I was like, what? I closed a physical facility because I shifted yeah. to all online. So that, that kind of surprised me Then when that was such a buzz at the beginning of, of the pandemic. Yep. And then when you talked about AI, of course, that if you remember, that's how... Um, I found you because of our friends at Remesh that that have such wonderful technology that, you know, I salivate over because of what it can do for us. And, and, <laughs> and that continues to evolve as a great product as well. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear you talk about technology. It's it's uh, yep. we ha- we have to be there. We have to be there. I agree. And um, it's only going to get better. So that's exciting. Oh, absolutely. The 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 growth will be ex. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? More rapid than just like everything else in the world. It's just happening exponentially. That's where I was thinking exponentially uh, faster and faster and faster. (laughs) Nailed it. Yeah, finally. So anything else you'd like to share? No, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say that as, um, you know, again, and I'm big on this, right, as consumers and business professionals um, find different ways that they're comfortable giving us data and communicating with the research industry, I think we have to really be open-minded and flexible in how we allow them to give us that data um, and, and not, not be stuck in one way because we've always done it that way. Right. That leads me to have just an off the cuff question. It really revolves around privacy and where, what, what, what that means for us and and what we need to be aware of and how do we, how do we operate in a world that is becoming a little tighter in our availability to, to reach the people and gather the information that we really want to use legitimately, but it's might get harder and harder. How talk to me about privacy issues. No, it, it has gotten harder and harder. And, and that's the other area that I've seen a lot of companies like not really adapt quickly to, right? Because with all the different privacy policies, um, there's a lot of different ways that we have to do things. So for Veridata, everything is permission-based. So if you want to ask, if you want to send consumers or business professionals through an online survey, and then maybe use some of their quotes or videos that they're doing for us for PR purposes, you know, you have to get the PR media release um, in order and addition to that, you want to make sure you're very open. How is this information going to be used? Where is it going to be posted? Because everything needs to be very transparent before somebody agrees to do things in that area. And then also on the B2B side, when you're asking companies a lot about you know, what are your budgets? What do you use internally? What are your challenges? Um, And then you ask them, hey, give us your name and your title. Business professionals do not want to do that. They want to remain anonymous, yet they want to share the information. So I think being respectful and understanding, you know, why that might be important to a business professional. And then fraud, I think as fraud has gotten bigger in the marketplace, both on the B2B side and on the consumer side, um, you know, for us recruitment, especially the hard to reach audiences, one of the challenges that we have is ensuring that we're giving people the confidence that we are a real company. And when we're a real company with a real need to gain their thoughts and opinions about a product or service or whatever it is we're looking for. And so when companies at the end of those projects like to add the collection of PII, or the collection of a PR release, all of a sudden, the people that we had been talking to have a lot of doubt on what we're really doing the research. And I think we have to be very respectful of that. So if there is a need for PII collection, transparency, and gaining permission, and making sure they understand how that information is going to be used, how long, 
and who will have access to it are all very important things to provide. It's interesting, even on the the one-on-ones that I just did, I didn't have any information about the people I was talking to. And I appreciated yes. that. And some of them, you know, I just asked them to tell me about themselves and they'd give me everything. <laughs> and some would say, do I, I don't have to give you my name. Nope, not important. Now you don't have to give me your yeah. name, but then they told me everything they could about the business that with a whoa, but <laughs> so, but I but I can't track it back to them, so it's okay. So yeah, and my yeah. guess is if they would have given you their, their name, they probably would have given you all the other information about yeah, the business. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, some gave me yeah. both, so it was it was all right. So, Jamie, I can't thank you enough. I do appreciate you you spending the time with us and sharing your your thoughts and opinions and letting us yeah. know more about uh, Veridata and hope, uh, hopefully other people will. will find you as well. And I look forward to to many other projects uh, together. It'll be great. So thank you. Yep. Well, thank you. We appreciate the opportunity uh, you know, to always add value to finding the right people to participate in research. And it makes it more fun when you enjoy the people you work with. So we really appreciate it. So thank you. That is the truth. And thank all of you for listening to Ignite, a podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. If you want to know more about the various ways we gain audience intelligence and turn that intelligence into solid marketing solutions, just drop me a note, Chris Wise. Until next time, stay wise. Thank you for listening to Ignite, a podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. If you want to learn more, head to designsensoryintel.com. Until next time, continue your pursuit of quenching your unending thirst for intelligent understanding of human consuming behavior. Okay.